circle, yes, we rotate. 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, Good evening and welcome everyone tonight on Full Circle. We come to you once again prepared to do our part to get your support. Support which allows us to continue to offer you amazing programming here on KPFA and on our apprenticeship program, Full Circle. You are in for a treat as we bring you a special look at the documentary film about the amazing life of Maya Angelou. And still I rise. The film takes us through her early career, the traumatic experience that caused her to remain silent for five years, and the people and places that shaped her amazing body of work. And we have the additional honor of speaking with Maya Angelou's son, Guy Johnson, as he tells us about his mom. We also will have one of the film's co-producers talk with us about what goes into making a documentary film about a national treasure. That's all tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Teresa Adams. Stay with us. Good evening, everyone. And again, welcome to Full Circle. Tonight, we are honored to present excerpts to highlight the award-winning documentary film, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. It is the first feature documentary film about the singer, dancer, activist, poet, and writer, Maya Angelou. A description from the website says, With unprecedented access, filmmakers Bob Hercules Rita Colb- and Rita Colburn Wack trace Dr. Angelou's incredible journey shedding light on the untold aspects of her life through never-before-seen footage, rare archival photographs and videos, and, of course, her own words. We start tonight's show with the trailer of the film, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. And remember, you can click or call anytime during the show tonight to reserve your copy. Do that by going to kpfa.org and click the Donate button, or you can call us at 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Here's the trailer for Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. Everybody in the world uses words. The writer has to take these most known things and put them together in such a way that a reader says, I never thought of it that way before. My mother's boyfriend raped me. I was seven. So I stopped speaking for five years. In those five years, I read every book in the black school library. When I decided to speak, I had a lot to say. Maya was a dancer. She sang. She was an actress. I mean, she was a beautiful Giacometti sculpture. Because she was a writer. When I reached for the pen to write, I have to scrape it across those scars. Maya was responsible for teaching me why I should know more about my roots. But I remember her being very angry. Very angry. 
My mother taught me a love of justice, a love of doing what's right. I know why the cage bird sings. It was a very important literary feat. Cage bird was really a, a, almost another Bible for me. It was the opening for me to wanting to be a writer. It was the first time I read something that resonated. It touched a very young girlish part of me. It reflected uh, my own mother's life. When I read it, I couldn't believe that she was free enough to talk about them. I read those words and thought, somebody knows who I am. She was big, and she had the voice of God. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling. I bear in the tide, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the hope and the dream of the slave, and so I rise. I rise. I rise. Welcome back to Full Circle here on KPFA 94.1 in Berkeley. You just heard the official trailer to the film Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, a film by co-directors and co-producers Bob Hercules and Rita Coburn-Wack. We hope to speak with the co-producer, director Rita Wack in just a few minutes. We want to bring you the extraordinary, this extraordinary literary work like the one we are featuring tonight on Full Circle. So we are offering the film Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. For a donation of $120, you can donate anytime on our secure website at kpfa.org. If you want to call us and speak with an actual person, please do so now. Call 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. We love hearing from you, but we also want you to know that your gifts are processed much more swiftly when you take advantage of our online services. Many of you have already done that, and we thank you very much. As a reminder, the website is kpfa.org. When you donate during the hour that Full Circle is on the air, you're supporting KPFA and the apprenticeship program. And since you're already a listener, why not become a member, too? You can find all that information on our website, kpfa.org. You can become a member with a donation of $25. And you can vote in the KPFA station board elections, which is very important. Remember, we are happy to accept your donation, whatever amount. For those of you that have seen this film, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, you've seen the depth and multifaceted life of this amazing woman. For those of you that haven't, this is your chance to see the film and support your local community radio station, KPFA. Get yourself a copy of a film that tells a wonderful story about an amazing woman and the people who impacted her life. Let me remind you of the different ways you can donate. You can donate securely on kpfa.org or call us at 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Thank you to everyone who has called or gone online. 
We appreciate your support. Now, we're going to take a minute and listen to another clip from the film, Maya Angelou, and Still I Rise. When Malcolm X came to Ghana, the African-Americans who were there, we gathered around him like his children. And he liked me, and we liked each other. I met Malcolm X at my mother's house in Ghana. My mother went out and bought about six chickens, and she rarely fried chicken. And I was almost sorry to meet Malcolm X because the chicken was so good and I had to share it with him. But the thing about Malcolm is, for a person of his stature, for me to ask a question and for him to think about it and then come back with an answer, it captured my heart. And his answers were so phenomenal. We wanted to meet so he could tell us what was going on in the States and what his plans were. And we found out that his quest was to find an African government that would take the United Nations Genocide Convention and make a charge against the United States. African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices manifest every day against Negroes in this society. This is Maya with me. And our delegation went into the American embassy in Ghana to deliver our petition condemning the United States. Have you had any commitment from any nations in Africa to support you? I would rather not say at this time. In fact, we couldn't get any African government to bring any charge against the U.S. because of the American money, the cash. He wanted to see as much as he could see of the African continent. He said in Ghana, I've gone to Mecca, I've taken the Hajj, and I have met men with hair blonde as corn silk and their faces as white as milk. And I have been able to call them brother. So obviously I was wrong. All white people are not blue-eyed devils. Now it takes a lot of courage to say to the world, you remember everything I said last week? Well, I don't believe that anymore. I want to have enough sense to see the new thing and enough courage to say the new thing. Thank you, everyone. Welcome back to Full Circle. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. I'm your host this evening, Teresa Adams. We were hoping to get our uh, filmmaker on the line, but I know she's traveling right now. So um, that may or may not happen this evening. So we will let you know. But in the meantime, we still want to remind you all about the ways that you can donate to help support this community radio station, KPFA. So you can go online to kpfa.org or you can call us at 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. We love hearing from you. Your donation supports not only the radio station KPFA, but the KPFA apprenticeship program, Full Circle. And then... 
people like me who have a love of radio will have an opportunity to come online and tell amazing stories like this one. So, once again, 1-800-439-5732 or go to the website kpfa.org. We are waiting for your call. Um, now, that clip that you just heard was from Malcolm X. I should have, was about Malcolm X, I should say. I should have mentioned that in the beginning. I thought it was really interesting that Maya Angelou talked about the fact that um, after his trip um, to Mecca, he had a change of heart and his perception of uh, racism there and in America was so drastically changed. And he was brave enough and courageous enough to say, wow, I had a change of heart. Everything I thought was not necessarily correct. And it takes um, a certain kind of person, a special kind of person to to, to be able to make something like that happen. So bravo for that. And I can just imagine what it was like to actually be able to speak to someone um, like that. And I know that I spoke with Guy Johnson um, yesterday, and he was saying that it was just amazing to meet people like that um, growing up with his mom, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Ruby D. all those people who at the time you never expected that they would be these larger-than-life personalities that we know today. So we get a chance to talk with him about that and get to hear what he has to say about being the only child of Maya Angelou. So we will get him on the line. Fantastic. He's Guy, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you. Fantastic. Did you hear the clip of Malcolm X, the one we were talking about? Yes, uh, I did. Yes, yes. You know, I think it's so funny because one of the things that I thought stood out was the part about um, the f- fried chicken. I heard you say about um, the fried chicken, which is interesting, the little things that we remember in life, you know, the moments in life that you stand out. Remember, this is Ghana. We were living in Ghana. Uh-huh. And fried chicken was not something that Ghanaians did. Mm -hmm. So my mother fried chicken perhaps once every couple of months. Mm -hmm. But when she did, people appeared out of the woodwork. (laughs) You know, and they would saucer you to death. Oh, I'll just have a little saucer, just a wing and maybe that leg. (laughs) A saucer and a wing and a leg. Okay, that's great. Well, I know I'm I'm sure you have more than you can count moments of living, uh, growing up with Maya Angelou. What are some of the other things that stand out for you um, as you were growing up as a child? I know I read somewhere that you said that you were her light. No. What I, someone asked me, what was it like growing up in her shadow? Mm -hmm. And And you said you grew up in her light. Yeah, Yeah, because... Uh, really, uh, quite often the light was a little bit too bright for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my mother was very inquisitive, and while she didn't necessarily do things other mothers did, she was always in my business, as <laughs> call. 
But mothers do that. They're always in your business. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, but it was a new experience for me. I only had one mother. And, mm-hmm. uh, quite honestly, uh, she would you know, ask the most penetrating questions uh, and then demand an answer. Uh, I felt it was an imposition. And, you know, I felt, you know, I'm a young man. I mean, I have a part-time job. I, I buy my, uh, my luxury items, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I didn't know how big a distance there was from part-time job to supporting yourself. <laughs> yes, right? Of course, not at the time. <laughs> and- really what I recall about my mother most well, she was a pioneer. She was doing things nobody else was doing. When yes. I was 10 years old in 1955, my mother wore her hair natural and wore African clothes when she came to my school. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many fights I had over that. If I was in a black school, the black kids would look at me and say, oh, your mama from Lost Africa. And I'd have to hit them because I thought Lost Africa was bad. I was as brainwashed as they were. Um, I didn't realize that what she was saying was really the truth. And, you know, she would tell me, you know, yes, Europeans have kings and queens, but Africa has emperors, Mm -hmm. queens as well. And she just, you just have to know your history. You have to read. And I would think, oh, Mom, really, you know. Well, she was an avid reader. We or I, Well, I read, and she said that she was an avid reader, and she spent quite a lot of time with her books. She um, read three books a week from the time I was eight years old until... I was, uh, until she was about 80-something when her vision started to fail. And I mean three books a week, and not light stuff. She'd read all the stuff that uh, was the first. We read science fiction when I was little, and mostly because she wanted to encourage me to read. But uh, she read everything. Everything. That is amazing. To, to <laughs> Did she have, um, or did she, did you have a special uh, book when you were growing up that you would read together? Well, hello. We did more poetry than books. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. Recitation was a very big thing as I was growing up. I mean, not for people to take outside, but for people to do within the home. Mm-hmm. If you get what I mean, this wasn't. I wasn't being prepared for Hollywood. You know what I mean? It was more educating. And what does this poem really mean? And when you say it, what are you putting into it? Are you understanding it? You know, so, I mean, from tell me not and mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream, and the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem, to um, much I marvel this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. You know, you <laughs> you had you analyze the poem as as well as learn to recite it. Yes, and um, and the rhythm of poetry and the meter of poetry and how people write and 
and look at that. And, for example, she was very big on Edgar Allan Poe, you know, particularly The Raven. So we, you know, I knew that one. And, uh, I mean, just so many poems. I, I did read that um, someone asked her, you know, of all the mediums that she's been involved in, you know, dancing as an actress or actor, I should say, um, and an author, what was the thing that she liked best? And she said she loved the poetry. Mm. So out of all the things she did, she loved the poetry. And I know you also mentioned that she loved dancing as well. That was one of the things that she really hated not doing anymore. Well, partly um, well, dancing when she was dancing was very rigorous. I remember uh, when she was in her 70s and having trouble, and I said, so, Mom, uh, that was 6,000 leaps, too many, huh? And she turned to me and she said, no, my son, it was 6,000 landings. You know, because she was a large person. And she weighed about, and I mean when she was fit, looking stunning and beautiful, she weighed 175 to 180 pounds. She was six foot tall. So consequently, when she danced uh, in a troupe, nobody wanted to catch her. I mean, most of these male dancers wear about 175 pounds themselves. <laughs> you know, and while... Uh, dancers generally can hold almost their weight. It's quite something else to catch someone flying through the air and maintain your form and your line, you know. And so she found that she got less opportunity for that, and that sort of broke her heart. But essentially, she was an entertainer. Even when she was a singer, it was her narrative and her soliloquies that entranced audiences. And that's what she tapped into when she became a speaker and, and was invited to campuses. She had a way of weaving the audience into what she was saying. And she spoke from the common denominator of humanity. I mean, she, she spoke from the black perspective but it was addressing the common denominator of humanity. I saw a clip of her speaking at um, Coretta Scott King's uh, funeral. Yes. And she was so passionate and so eloquent in what she was saying. And she was talking about how um, uh, uh, Mrs. King was saying that she wanted to see some, she thought that there should be... Um, Everyone was entitled to, I wrote it down, everyone is entitled to peace and justice everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. Every person, everywhere. Here it is. Okay. Peace and justice should belong to every person everywhere all the time. And at the end of that statement, she also said she wanted to see some peace somewhere some fairness, some justice, some kindness. So what do you think she would say about some of the things that are happening today? Because I know she was an advocate for justice and fairness, and that was one of the things that drew her to Dr. Martin Luther King. 
So what do you think she would say? Now? I think she would say, we live in cycles. Mm-hmm. We take two steps forward and sometimes three steps backward and then two steps forward and then only one step backward. We live in cycles. We couldn't have ever had Barack Obama as president if we hadn't had George Bush precede him. Okay. And once Barack Obama came, we had to have the steps backward. Okay. Do you think we had to? What? We had to? Have, you think she would say we had to have the steps? No, I don't think she'd say that, but I think she would know that that's part of the cycle of being human. Okay. There is no linear thing to being human. If you want simplicity, it's not about what human beings do. True. Very true. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but I think what my mother would say more is she would take a look at this and she would say to I know she'd, she said it to me many times. You can never tell who God will use. You take a look at Earl Warren. Mm-hmm. He interned the Japanese. He wrote the order interning the Japanese. So when he was support, uh, appointed to the Supreme Court, they thought they were getting a conservative. But the man looked and said, I'm a caretaker of the Constitution. <laughs> and he became probably one of the most radical uh, chief Supreme Court justices we've ever had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, then she'd point out uh, a person like uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And Lyndon Baines Johnson came out of Texas and represented the Southern um vote for Kennedy. He was a conservative. I think it took him six months to learn how to say the word Negro. Oh, wow. But when Kennedy died, he did something that Kennedy didn't even, wouldn't even have done. He got the Civil Rights Act passed. passed. That's true. And that was a lot of smoke and backroom dealing. Definitely. Definitely. You know, so... You can't tell who God will use. That's true. Well, I would say that he used your mom um, to bring messages uh, to people and have us think about life in a different way and take ordinary situations and think about them in a different way. Um, Why is that person sad or why do we feel the need to say something when we can sometimes silence is okay, you know? Or we can always have, um, there is a possibility to have peace. There doesn't always have to be war. I know that was one of the things she said, that she was looking for some peace. You know, Bill Clinton at her memorial, President Bill Clinton said, Mm -hmm. I know why she passed away. God wanted his voice back. (laughs) Ooh, yes, yes. Well, she definitely had a a voice that... um, I mean, when you someone is described as a national treasure, that is 
one of the most profound things I can think of for somebody to say about you. And I, you know, I'm curious, what are some, what is something that you remember about your mom that we wouldn't find in the clip and maybe she hasn't said in an interview? Mm. Something that would, um, I don't actually know. My mother said so many things. To me. <laughs> um, you know, uh, my mother had a, a really profound sense of humor, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I understood it and shared it with her on occasion. Mm-hmm. But, for example, we used to have a saying that when things, uh, and, and you put your best effort into it and things didn't go right, she would turn to me and she say, I went to buy a chicken, and it turned out to be a duck. Now, this saying came from when we lived in Egypt. And my mother, I was married to Vusmaki, who was a freedom fighter for the Pan-Africanist Congress. And so that meant he was out there raising money. Uh, But his paid job, he worked for the United Nations as a UN observer and he would go to troubled spots, and he would uh, report what he saw, what the economy was, where this, you know, all of that. So Voos uh, had a uh, real thing about uh, showing off, and so he invited um, several ambassadors to dinner, and these were people he was going to uh, later ask for money, and, you know, or support for uh, the Pan-Africanist Congress. So my mother sent him out to buy chickens. And the reason she sent him out to buy chickens is because we didn't have a stove. We had three Primus burners, and those are little things that you pump up. They're about 12 to 15 inches high, Mm -hmm. and you pump it up and you light it, and it'll hold a pot about eight inches wide. I know what you're talking about, yeah. So we had three of those. Now, my mother was known for cooking five and six course meals. Yes, I remember reading that and hearing her say that before. Okay, so she told him to go out and get chickens. He came back with ducks. (laughs) Now, he didn't know, and neither did I really know at the time, that ducks take four times as long as a chicken. You know, right. if you're going to cook it, you've got to render it. And that means long and slow. Right. Or you have to cut it up in such a way and then take the fat. And I mean, all stuff I don't know. And I'm sure she found some philosophy in that, in the duck versus the chicken, oh. right? Well, what happened was I came home from school and my mother was close to tears. And I came in and I said, well, what's going on? And my mother looked at me, and the tears were running down her face. She was so angry and and disappointed. And so I turned to Voos, and Voos dropped his hands and said to me, I went to buy a chicken. And it turned out to be a duck. Well, when I heard that, I just fell out laughing. And when I started laughing, my mother started laughing. Because it was an insane thing to say. But it was his explanation. I got it. I got it. And so from then on, when things didn't go right, 
we'd turn to each other, and she would either say to me, I went to buy a chicken, and it turned out to be a duck. Oh, that's so nice. Well, let me tell you. Oh. So. Guy, that is fair. Bruce, uh-huh. when he had bought the duck, invited two more ambassadors beyond the ones that she knew about. So she sent me back out. I bought two more ducks. She called the ambassadors, got their cooks so got their cooks to come over, brought more burners, and she cooked duck dinner for twelve. Oh wow. That people talked about for two years afterwards. That's fantastic. I am so sure that we won't find anything like that in the documentary, that's for sure. Oh listen, the documentary but, was a sliver of her life. That's good to know. And and I'm I'm pleased. Well fantastic. They it, and they did a good job at capturing it. Oh fantastic. but it was only a sliver. It didn't talk about her struggles as an artist, Mm -hmm. the heartbreak, the disappointments, the things that she went through. It didn't talk, really, about her struggles as an activist and what made her the center of black society in New York. I mean, she was absolutely at the center of it. She knew everybody, everybody. And, Mm -hmm. like, we had no money. I grew up, my mother worked for the... Uh, for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference after the time I was 14. There was no money for, you know, because any extra money she had, it went there. I mean, we didn't starve, but we didn't have time to go out to big dinners and all of that. So we did museums. We, every the month, arts. we spent the weekend together. Mm-hmm. That's how we stayed in touch. Oh, wow. Oh, well, Guy, thank you. We we are running out of time, but I wanted to say so much. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening to tell us about your mom, Maya Angelou. And I wanted to give you a picture that wasn't part of the parade. And you did, because crying about a duck, who would think? <laughs> Who would think that something like that would happen? But, like, I'm going to remember that. You went to buy a chicken and I got a duck instead. I'm going to remember that. And it is nice to hear that you are pleased with the way the documentary came, uh, turned out. Well, you know, there's only so much that can be done in an hour and a half. Oh, definitely. I was looking at, you know, all the research I was doing and I said, oh, my God, no wonder she has seven... um, autobiographies because she's just done so many things that you, you you can't capture all of it. I don't think we could ever capture all the things that she's done. Um, but I think we all truly appreciate what she has meant to us as a generation. Um, so thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us. We love her. We love the work that she's done. And we know from what you've said that she adored you. So and the family. So thank you so much for that. And I hope that people remember that she says we are more alike than we are unalike. And our differences are such that out of the 8 billion people who are here, none of us are exactly alike. So we need to appreciate our differences mm-hmm. and understand that we are all brothers and sisters. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Guy Johnson, Maya Angelou's son, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have another clip 
from the film Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. We'll be right back. It was the awakening summer of 1960, and the entire country was in labor. Something wonderful was about to be born, and we were all going to be good parents to the welcome child. Its name was Freedom. We have no alternative but to keep moving with determination. We've gone too far now to turn back. Dr. King came to New York to speak at Riverside Church. And I went with friends, and we were so moved. He was just, he was irresistible. And his idea of nonviolence was absolutely what I had been waiting for. I had lived around so much violence and been myself violated. And when Reverend King came and said, we can change the world with nonviolence, it was like pouring water on a parched desert. I needed that, and I was ready for it. And so I and Godfrey Cambridge, a comedian, wrote a piece called Cabaret for Freedom to raise money, and we gave it to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in New York. Bayard Rustin suggested that I be asked to come in as the Northern Coordinator of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And Reverend King came, and he reminded me of my brother, small, beautiful speaking voice. So when Dr. King sat in my office, he became a big brother. I became a little girl again. When Harlem became politicized, really politicized, in the 50s and 60s, it was so amazing. It was a crazy time in Harlem. Mr. Michaud's bookshop was right in the middle of everything. He'd have 500 people out in front of his bookshop as they'd be talking. And I didn't know it was the precursor to Malcolm. When America says in God we trust, she means she trusts in that white God who showed her how to steal this country from the dark-skinned Indians, who showed her how to kidnap you and me and bring us over here and make us slaves. When I use the term God, I'm speaking about our God, the God of our forefathers, the black man's God. In fact, At the time, I was this young actor, you know, I'd done uh, A Reason of the Sun. I had started at the age of 17. I didn't have any racial consciousness or anything. So that deep abiding culture, Maya was responsible for teaching me why I should be upset, why I should know more about my roots. And I eavesdropped a lot. And I sat at, uh, around her to listen to her and her contemporaries. And I saw her with Malcolm X from time to time and people like that. But I remember her being very angry, very angry to, to tears. Because she was fighting the devil, the white devil, as she called it. It was the time of the Afros, Dashikis, the reestablishment of the African and American black roots. Many African Americans made friends with Africans who had come to United Nations. They got whiskey and drinks and invited African Americans to the parties. It was wonderful. We made friends. Now that Africa is getting independent and in a position to create its own image, 
those of us in the West look at the African image and see how positive it is, we begin to identify with it. We, be, we become proud of our African blood, our African heritage. And your Western imperialists and colonialists uh, consider this to be a grave threat. And then we heard that Patrice Lumumba from the Congo had been killed. This was Patrice Lumumba in June 1960, the premier of the new Congo Republic, waiting for the ceremonies that would mark Congolese independence. Less than two weeks in the future, lay the army mutiny that would plunge the Congo into near chaos. Colonel Joseph Mobutu, whose forces seized Lumumba at the beginning of December. And the African Americans took it as if Patrice Lumumba was in fact an African American right off 125th Street. We started asking people in Harlem to come down to United Nations and protest. People who had never been down to Times Square, people born in Harlem, full of anger at the way Africans were treated on their homeland. We filled the General Assembly at United Nations. Adlai Stevenson was at the desk. We believe that the only way to keep the Cold War out of the Congo is to keep the United Nations in the Congo. And at one point, Rosa Guy's sister screamed, Murderer! At the top of her voice. Whereupon all the people got up and started fighting. Speech is interrupted by a well-organized demonstration in the gallery. Most of the group are American Negroes, members of African nationalist groups in New York. My mother taught me a love of justice, a love of doing what's right. She said to me, if you really have something to protest, you should be on the streets. My mother was leading this demonstration, and I was with her. We were protesting the damage done to people in the South who had gone down there for the Freedom Rides. And we had about 400 people. Three blocks away, the mounted police pull into the street in formation. People in the demonstration began going to the sidewalk. Because in those days, they ran over people. They stomped them, trampled them, and left their bodies in the street. And I was looking at my mother, and she, we kept on. And I said, Ma, Come on, you're going to get us killed. Let's go. She turned to me and she said, one person standing on the word of God is the majority. I looked at her and I thought, you would have gone crazy. By the time the police got to us, there was probably eight or nine people out of the 400 behind us. The sergeant in charge started to walk past us. My mother pulled out this big hairpin out of her headband and stuck it in the sergeant's horse. The sergeant's horse neighed and reared up. The sergeant fell off. The people came back from the sidewalk and we finished that march. Whew. That zine courage like that brought right up to my face. She took me on a trip or two. Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1. 
I am your host, Teresa Adams, and tonight we are listening to excerpts from the documentary film, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. I like saying it like that, and Still I Rise. Um, the clip you just heard was about Martin Luther King and her meeting and her uh, uniting with him. You also heard her son, Guy Johnson, who was just speaking with us on the telephone, and um Tonight, we are offering that film to you for $120, and your support will help not only KPFA, but it helps KPFA's apprenticeship program as well. You can make a gift over a six-month period of time if you like. You don't have to um, donate all at once. You can call us at 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Or you can go online to kpfa.org. And now with us on the line is the one of the co-producers and co-directors of the film, Rita Wack. Rita, are you there? There? Yes. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing, Rita? Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful. Glad to be with you. <laughs> I know you're traveling and that was a uh, part of the delay, but we're happy that you could take some time out of your um, trip to speak with us about the film. So let's just get to it and just tell us what is it like to create a documentary film for someone referred to as a national treasure? Well, I think what happens is you realize at some point that everything you've done before has kind of prepared you for this. And so there were films that I did that focused on art and films that even focused on agriculture and architecture and um, the 12 black millionaires that were in Chicago in the 40s. And you get a sense that history has to be told And you also get a sense that it hasn't been told from a black woman's point of view, especially not one who was born in the Jim Crow South in 1928 and lived such a full life that it encompassed the women's movement, the civil rights movement, the arts movement, the Harlem Renaissance era afterwards with the with the black writers and and all the rest of that and whose path crossed so many paths of others who were important to our history. So you you take a deep breath and you feel very blessed that you're able to do it. And so I think that um, it, it just became a point that um, you knew you were dealing with an icon, but a person who was also really a human being, a woman who had loved and lost, a woman who struggled with motherhood and still decided um, she would be valiant in that. And so I think that um, it it was just a a time period that really uh, was was wonderful for me, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I, I can say that you all did a great job of capturing the person like what you're just saying so and you took so there's so many different elements in the film that we don't hear about all the time how difficult was it to to choose which clips to use what films to talk about how how difficult was that uh, i'm sorry can you hear me okay i'm sorry oh, i didn't okay. uh, no i said 
Did you hear my question when I said... Um, yes, I did. Oh, okay, um, yeah. I didn't hear I, you for I a second. I think it, the choices were... Um, okay, first off, you know very well that you can't get 86 years of a life <laughs> in 90 minutes. Definitely. And especially one lived in the way she lived her life. So as a result of that, you have to make choices. But the first thing you have to do, it's kind of like getting ready for a play or to act. You need to memorize the lines and then you need to put into them the feelings and the emotions. So what we really had to do was sift through a lot of footage and didn't get through all of it. We mm-hmm. just could not. We were north of 150 hours of various programming from her times on Oprah shows over the 25 years that she would be on that show to um, pieces from the BBC and German television. Mm-hmm. And there were pieces that we had to leave out when she did her first film with the AFI. And, uh, you know, there there was that. And then we went through over 4,000 photographs to get the 314 that you see in the film. And we still had boxes of photographs that her wonderful family had pulled for us that we still couldn't get through them all. And so uh, someone in the office, Mrs. Clay, had put them in 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you grab are the 50s and 60s and 70s, because the rest of it will be captured in another way, but you need those early years. And so it was a matter of sifting through and making some very difficult choices. And then each scene is a story that must start and land on your subject. So as opposed to subject matter, you're talking about racism or women's history. You're talking about a soul, a human being, a person who has done so much. So you want to make sure that scene starts and lands with her, Mm -hmm. which means that helps you to comb out everything else that shouldn't be in there because it's her story. And you'll also notice that we used her voice. And so we didn't have a narrator, and that was purposely done. So as a result of that, you know that she owns the story. So now you're matching her voice to her voice. And unfortunately for all of us, she passes in May of 2014. Mm -hmm, Right. And I know you had Guy Johnson on, uh, whom I give homage to, because everybody else lost an icon, and he's the only person that lost a mother. And on that time period, she had not yet listened or seen anything of the film. Oh, wow. And we hadn't even begun the edit. So now, because she had such a wealth of media, there were five of the seven autobiographical memoirs that were done that she had read. So now we could, you're in the car, you're on the plane, wherever you go, you're listening to the book over and over to pull a line that would fit because she's narrating it. And you've got her voice, then you've got from the five books, then you've got from the 150 hours of programming, you link her voice to her voice. You can't go back and say, could you talk a little bit more about this? Or what about that? Mm 
So you have to find it. And in that finding, you're doing more research. And I, as a filmmaker, I'm a frustrated historian. I didn't see my family in the history book, so I thought, hmm, who else is missing? And so the oral history and the tradition of African Americans and telling one another stories uh, helps you to understand that it's really important as to what we say. And now you have a wordsmith. You have a person for whom words mean something, a poet, a writer, a person who really believed in herself and believed in the people around her and encouraged people and so is known for phrases. Nothing will work unless you do. Um, when someone tells you who they are, believe, believe them. When someone time. shows you who they are, believe <laughs> right. them. And so, I have come to let that be my mantra sometimes. <laughs> isn't it so true? Yes. And I think what happens is because she excavated herself and came to her own truth, that truth becomes universal. And people glom onto it, want to hear it, use it when they are in the need of it, celebrate it, as she did so often. So um, I hope I answered your question. You did, and you answered one of the questions before I had a chance to ask it, which about, was about the power of sharing stories and a story like this. But also, um, like we were, you were just saying, and we were just talking about, you know, things that we know her for, like when someone shows you who they are, believe them, um, things like that. But then also you have pieces in the clip in the film where we see things like the clip with Diane Carroll, where she talks oh about she's tall <laughs> and then she's wearing no shoes. Who is yes. this little oh, thing? Oh, my goodness. First of all, Diane Carroll, is she not Diane Carroll? She's Diane Carroll, okay. that's for sure. I mean, my goodness <laughs> gracious. And, and for her to be there at Ye Old Little Club and, uh, and and deliver it in that voice and remember it from the 50s. Mm-hmm. That was one of the challenges. One of the first things we did was go to the older Americans who remembered her from that time period. Mm-hmm. So Bob Loomis, Jules Pfeiffer, Diane Carroll, uh, we wanted to make sure that we got their voices. Uh, Don, oh my goodness, Don Martin, who was a dancer Mm -hmm. and opened for her. Uh, Oh my goodness, he was still such a dancer, uh, even when we interviewed him. It's wonderful. And so this was, you know, you were entreated by the presence and tall something, no shoes. I mean, really, Diane Carroll. Amazing. (laughs) She could only deliver that line like that. When you heard it, you thought, there it is. And you think... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And then you think, oh, you look down, it's like, oh, no, she isn't wearing any shoes. And and it's kind of what I was saying to Guy. It's those tiny moments that we remember in, you know, those experiences that we remember in life that stay with us and things that sometimes you don't think about all the time. But yeah. it's so significant yeah. because here's this tall black woman on stage barefoot. You know, so it, you did a great job of capturing those the, the moments like that or like the Calypso dancing, just all the different things that are there that um, tell us about the different um, facets of Maya Angelou, which um, we love so much. And I could just go on and on, but we don't have time for 
going on. But uh, we are just really thrilled that you had the opportunity to speak with us this evening. Oh, I'm so happy that you had the time. And forgive me for not being with you earlier. I'm sure Guy was smashing as yes, he always Yes, is. he's wonderful. Yeah. It was wonderful to speak with him. Just like it is very great to speak with you too so and but we we it's that time of the evening so <laughs> okay but yes thank but you. thank you so much for the film Maya Angelou um and still I rise I love saying I know it like you that. love saying it like that. yeah I do I love did you hear me say I, I, think I you're love a bit dramatic but that's <laughs> <okay>. yes <laughs> You and Diane Carroll, you guys would get along famously. <laughs> oh, well, hey, that's I like hearing that. That's cool to know. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rita. Rita Wack, everyone. One of the co-producers, co-directors of the documentary film, Maya Angelou. And still I rise. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> thank you evening. for having me. Blessings. Okay. Thank you. Same to you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye bye. That is Rita Wack. As I said, she is one of the co producers, co directors of the film, documentary film, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. Um, it is a film that we are offering to our wonderful supporters this evening here on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. Please support us. It's supporting the station, it supports the apprenticeship program, and then People like me, like I said before, who have a love of radio will have the opportunity to come on the air and tell amazing stories about amazing people. And it's all because of you. If not for you, we would not be on the air. So please call us at, excuse me, 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. Hey, 1-800-HEY-KPFA or go online to kpfa.org. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. Our program director is Ms. M. Thank you to Frank. Thank you to Darlene on the bo- uh, as our tech assistant. Frank is on the board. I've been your host, Teresa Adams. We'll see you next week. Up next, La Onda Baita. And also, happy Mother's Day to all the women and men out there. Thank you.